Welcome to the Kindling's Muse podcast, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. Welcome, everybody, to the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. Uh, this event is taped for podcast in front of a live audience at Kane Hall on the campus of the University of Washington, Go Huskies. Uh, each month, Reverend Earl Palmer selects a book every thinking person ought to read. He begins with some opening comments, followed by conversation with me, and then we get into the really exciting part of the evening when the audience is removed from captivity and takes over the entire evening with their questions and comments, and that's always a lot of fun. Tonight our subject is Rembrandt, artist and interpreter of the Bible, and we're going to be exploring it in part through Henri Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, which is an amazing story of a very spiritually sensitive man who comes into contact with the provocative art of another man whose journey uh, really encapsulates so much of the breadth of the gospel story. Uh, that being Rembrandt. Uh, and it's a spiritual adventure, essentially, that Nowen writes. Uh, he had a chance encounter with a poster of Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son and ended up going to Russia to see this in person. Uh, and it was a turning point in his life. It helped him redefine and clarify his own vocation in life. That's a tribute to the power of art and what it can do to really impact us and transform us. So I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, will you join me in giving a big round of applause in welcoming Reverend Earl Palmer. Well, uh, Rembrandt is a, is a great hero of mine as well as he was of certainly of Henri Nouwen. And uh, I have one other book too by uh, Visserdehoef, the great Dutch theologian who was uh, in all the early formative years, he was the, uh, the uh, uh, you might say, that the leading uh, uh, secretary and leader of the founding of the World Council of Churches in, in the world. And he was also a, a, a Dutch theologian who cared a lot about Rembrandt. So I have a couple of quotations from Visserhoof as well. <clears throat> well... Uh, this is a different uh, Kindling Muse than you've ever been to because we have a handout, a free handout for everybody that came unless they ran out because we did try to make enough for everybody. And did every, did, there are some that did not get the, the, one of the handouts. I have one extra since I have Henri Nguyen's book. I don't need to have two of the Return of the Prodigals. Uh, but uh, hand that to anybody that would like that who didn't get one. And maybe if some of you are a couple and you have two, uh, the, maybe you can share one of them. I have a handout tonight of two great Rembrandt uh, paintings that we will reflect on theologically. And one is the, the, uh, the Adoration of the Shepherds, since this is uh, December and we're looking forward to Christmas. It's, it's certainly right to have that great painting by Rembrandt, The Adoration of the Shepherds, and also probably the most famous of all the Rembrandt paintings, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And we'll talk about those two uh, paintings. And it, so while we're doing sharing now of paintings, I did, we did publish uh, uh, 90 of them. So if you got more, we got more than 90 people here. That's why there's not enough maybe for everybody. I, I, uh, 
usually we have around 90 to 100 people here, but it's just great if you can look on and have those two paintings in front of you. And let me tell you, first of all, about Rembrandt. Uh, what an amazing man and kind of a, uh, a, a journey that was an incredible journey in his own life. He was born in 1606. Now, dates don't mean a lot, but think about it for a minute. Uh, J.S. Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, was born in 1685. That means almost 80 years later. And, and you know, it's kind of interesting, because I did uh, a, a special study on George Frederick Handel's Messiah last year at this very Kindling Muse, and George Frederick Handel was also born 1685, the same year as Johann Sebastian Bach. And then about 10 years after the birth of Handel was Charles Wesley, and then Isaac, Newton, Isaac Watts, all within that period. And so that there in that period, and last year, we celebrated uh, that amazing masterwork, Messiah, written uh, by George Frederick Handel. Uh, so he had all these musical influences on Christian music and world music, all that live within a very short time with the, of each other. Bach and uh, Charles Wesley, George Frederick Handel, and then Isaac Watts. And, uh, and, they, and they were interpreters of the Bible. And I made a big point of that last year. Well, now here is 80 years earlier... Uh, not a musician, but an artist who is an interpreter of the Bible. And that's what I'm going to mainly try to point out to you and let you see for yourself what a great biblical expositor was, uh, just like Handel was an amazing expositor uh, in Messiah, so, uh, and Bach in Passion According to St. Matthew, Charles Wesley and everything he wrote. And now, we're going to look at a man who was born 80 years earlier than these guys, and that man is Rembrandt von, von Rinn. He was born in, in Linden, uh, Holland, and uh, in a, from Miller's family. In the early years, his father and mother recognized his artistic skill, especially his mother, uh, who uh, encouraged him, so did his father, but especially the mother. And they pooled a lot. They were, they were just ordinary uh, folk, but they pooled money to make sure this young man could get lessons. And he did study under a man named Peter uh, Lassman. And Lassman, who was a famous artist, took him on as a pupil. So we do have uh, that influence on Rembrandt. Uh, but you'll see in a minute, it's an influence that Rembrandt did shake off in a way. Because Lassman had been so influenced by Baroque and the Baroque artists of that period where everything, especially with regard to biblical scenes, are all highly glorified with uh, that kind of use of light. And Rembrandt, you'll see in the earliest paintings that when he was under Lassman's influence, you get that again, very high glorious portrayal. And then it all changes, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's first of all look at his story of his life. In 1634, uh, Rem Rembrandt married... Uh, uh, a very wealthy young woman, a beautiful young woman named Saskia Van Ullenberch. And he, uh, oh, by the way, Rembrandt had no problem with ego strength in terms of himself. He painted himself continuously. 
uh, there are more self-portraits of Rembrandt than any other painter, certainly in the history of art. And uh, some people said it was because he was testing different colors, and because he was very interested in colors and the use of colors. But he started painting himself early on, and he painted the people that meant a great deal to him early on. His mother, some of the, his first great painting of his mother was his mother as the great Anna, who is in the nativity scene of our Lord and gives a, she's the prophet that gives a, a special word of prophecy at the birth of Christ. And his mother was used as a model for that. We have a great number of his mother's uh, uh, paintings of his mother. And, of course, many paintings of his beloved Saskia, including some of the very uh, bold ones of Rembrandt as a young man, uh, as the lover with his uh, beloved wife. And so he paints, uh, uh, he paints her with a number of great paintings of his wife, but mainly himself. He paints, and so you can, tra you can trace Rembrandt all the way through his life and how he, everything changed with these self-portraits of, him, of himself. Uh, he marries uh, Sakia, and they have four children, but it's kind, of a, it's kind of a sad story in a way because uh, she's married in 1634 to, uh, to uh, Rembrandt, and then she dies in 1642. Four children, but then eight years later she dies, leaving a nine-month-old boy. The only survivor of her children is a young man named Titus. And uh, by the way, there are many, many paintings that Rembrandt did of Titus, wonderful paintings of Titus. But Titus was nine months old, and Rembrandt is now widowed uh, at age 42. The part of the heartbreak of that in, 18, in 1642 is that he is on a high roll in his art at that time because uh, uh, you might say one of the high watermarks of, of Rembrandt's success was that in that period, if you look at all the paintings, and they're dated usually, the paintings that are in museums are all dated, you'll see that the most famous, some of his most famous paintings are in that very period just before the death of his wife. This, uh, many paintings of his wife and of himself, very romantic. And then, of course, his most famous painting probably in the world today is the Night Watch. And the Night Watch was done in, in 1642, just b actually before the death of, of his wife. And the Night Watch is of... It's an amazing painting. It's in Holland. Have any of you been to Amsterdam to see the Night Watch? And you can see it now with all kinds of light. Uh, it takes You have to wait hours to get in to see it, but they, they let you sit, and then they do various uh, plays on it with lights so that it, they show the brilliance of that painting. In the Night Watch, uh, Rembrandt was commissioned to do it uh, by a group of people that were in a city. They were in city government, and they, they commissioned it. Uh, because the previous painting that he did in, in uh, 1641 was also very famous, and that was called the painting of the syndicate. You remember the painting? That's five men that are all accountants. It's probably one of the most famous and one of the brilliant paintings of Rembrandt because in that painting, he catches them as somebody opens the door, and they're all looking this way, and that's the syndicate uh, painting. And that, of course, established him in, 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 with his fame and became very famous with that. And then the Night Watch, actually, the, interesting, the irony of the Night Watch is that uh, there are 29 figures in the Night Watch. 
but only 16 paid. And so 16 guys paid the money to have the night watch done, and they were a little bit outraged that there are 29 people that are in the painting, a lot of them freeloaders, who didn't pay. A lot of them, little urchins, little children, some actually some bums that were sitting around that Rembrandt put into the painting. And here the, the guys that had paid for the painting, uh, they, they're there and they get prominence. They really are prominent in prominent places, especially when they're well lit. And uh, it's an amazing painting of, of the famous Night Watch. You've got to go see it. it is, it's Rembrandt at his most famous moment. But then his wife died. And you might say everything goes into a different direction at the death of his wife. Because she, this young woman, beautiful woman, he loved her dearly, and uh, had four children, but of course only one survives, Titus. He's nine months old when she dies. And uh, she had a will. And in her will, it's, it, it sounds so, obvious, so odd, but her will was that if her husband ever married anybody else, he would get none of her estate. Uh, and here she only lives uh, in marriage for only nine, eight years. She certainly never expected that she was going to die in eight years. And she did die, and that will was in force, and it threw Rembrandt into instantaneous bankruptcy. Now, if you've been to Holland and seen the Rembrandt house, I've done it. My wife and I, my daughter and I, Liz, took a tour where I gave lectures on Rembrandt and Karl Barth. I mixed the two together because we started in Amsterdam and then we took the Rhine River and I did lectures on, on Karl Barth and the Barman Declaration. But we started with Rembrandt and we, because I love Rembrandt and we went uh, and saw the, the great uh, night watch in the Reich Museum. But we went to the Rembrandt house. He owned a beautiful home when Sasha was alive. It went up, it went up about six stories and he had the upper part where he had created a kind of museum for his students, and he had purchased, foolishly, a great deal of artifacts, even archaeological artifacts, uh, from Egypt and other places and put in his house. And at the death of Sasha, he lost everything. It was sold to, because he, he had foolishly purchased these things, and some of them hadn't been fully paid for, and so he lost everything. And it threw him into a kind of bad poverty in another way, too. No one wanted to hire him to do paintings anymore because all the paintings he had done were now on, uh, at Costco. Uh, why buy a, a painting from Rembrandt? They're all been sold, and they're, on, they're at Costco. You can get them cheap. And so he lost all of his great sales. So here he had just done the syndicate, which is world famous. He had done the night watch, which was world famous, though, though a lot of people were upset. In fact, you know, they cut the end of the night watch off to make it fit into the, uh, into the uh, city hall. And, and so they cut a few of the non-paying people out of the painting, uh, which is infuriating for an artist to have a part of your painting cut off to make it fit into a room. But anyway... This famous man who was the, 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 he was riding in triumph, and then his wife dies. This estate is made clear that he cannot receive any of her money, and she was a very wealthy woman. So now he's in deep poverty, instant poverty, his, with a little boy to raise. 
And they have a housekeeper who helps take care of the little boy with him, and he falls in love with the housekeeper. And she's a wonder... And by the way, there are beautiful pictures that he does of Heinrich Stoffel. And, she, and they can't get married, though, because he's in the Dutch Reformed Church, and uh, he, they're living together because the, the will said if he, uh, if he married another person, he couldn't get any money. But Titus can get money from the estate. So some of the money that was for Titus, but if he were to marry, and so he didn't marry Heinrich, but he lives with her. And then, of course, the Dutch church calls him in for uh, scolding. And then the big concern was that with Heinrich, they have a, a beautiful daughter named Cordelia, and she is born, and he wants her baptized. And they won't baptize her first, the Dutch church, because they're not married. Uh, the wife and the husband are not married. They're not married because he knew he'd lose all the estate, even the money that was due for Titus, he would lose it if he married. So that's the sort of the sad part of it. Uh, and in a way, there's a question, was Rembrandt, uh, was he shunned by everyone? Uh, it is true that there, uh, he, though the Dutch church did finally agree to baptize, uh, this little girl, Cornelia, who does finally outlive Rembrandt in the end, uh, and they do ba baptize her, and, but yet he is now not really able to be in the Dutch church in full standing. And the, the, that's the sad part. But the good part is a group of free church people, Mennonites, a Mennonite fellowship befriended him. And they became his friends and became a very important part of his life. So the Christians in the Mennonite Fellowship, uh, which were not respected by the Dutch church as being really uh, fully orthodox, but they befriended Rembrandt. So in these last years of his life, uh, uh, because he, doesn't he only lives to be 63, but in, the, in the next, this period of his life, he's befriended by these Mennonite folks. Well, Heinrich, he dies in 1662, and Titus dies at age 27 in 1668, and then Rembrandt dies in 1669. Now, uh, what about his paintings? First, I told you he was under the influence of Lassman, and if you get the big Rembrandt book, I have a Rembrandt book here that does some interesting things. It shows you pictures that... Uh, like a pupil, he borrows, uh, like every artist learns how to draw by borrowing and learning from your, your teacher. And he does that. He has a he, and so if in this book, if you get this big Rembrandt book, you will see that he has uh, borrowed uh, from Lassman the Sacrifice of Isaac painting. And so he does the Sacrifice of Isaac, but he changes it. And the changes of Rembrandt make it a great painting instead of just a painting. He takes from another teacher the uh, storm in the Lake of Galilee, and he borrows it, but he changes it. And when he changes it, it becomes the memorable and brilliant lake, uh, it's called Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee painting of the ship storm with Jesus in the ship, and the disciples are trying to save the ship from the, book of, from the Gospels. So he does that. He borrows. 
And in those earliest days, he is slavishly borrowing, like in some of his early religious paintings, those earliest ones, you can see that he's borrowing uh, from these other writers, these other painters that are under the influence of a more Baroque approach, that when you have an angel, like in, in his very first painting of the shepherds uh, being announced the birth of Christ, you have this huge angelic scare, and all the shepherds are running around down in, in terror, uh, but it's highly glorified. It's, it's a little bit like whenever you have Jesus or when you have Mary, the, the mother of our Lord, you've got to have glorification and all kinds of halos and things of this sort have got to be there. And that's what the painters were doing in those early paintings. Then, interestingly, uh, Rembrandt begins even before he does Night Watch. Even be, he's still uh, the darling of the establishment when he, when he does those paintings like the Syndicate and, and Night Watch uh, until he goes into bankruptcy and then all of his paintings are sold and so that then he doesn't have any more customers. And yet he starts almost exclusively then to really focus on people. He just wants to paint people and, uh, and biblical, biblical people. He paints, uh, and he decides to do it in his own way. For instance, I love his St. Paul. I, when I teach, I, like I just did a class on 2 Timothy, and I, what we do is we take the text of 2 Timothy, and I put St. Paul, Rembrandt St. Paul, on the cover. And if I do a, a study from the Gospels, I'll put Rembrandt's head of Christ on the, on the cover. But uh, this, this amazing painting of St. Paul is simply totally different than, than what uh, the Baroque artists would do, where you'd have to have some sort of rays of light and glory on St. Paul. But he just does a simple uh, St. Paul uh, meditating and writing, writing a letter. So it's, it's, it's sort of Rembrandt's interpretation of Paul as a writer of books, and that's the way he decides to portray St. Paul. And then uh, in uh, 1642, uh, before he's, uh, while he's still in the famous period, he decides, uh, in 1646 rather, he decides to draw the Adoration of the Shepherds. And for the Adoration of the Shepherds, I gave you that painting. This painting uh, is a total break uh, from what other artists of his time were doing. It's, uh, if you look at this, you'll notice the, it's, this painting is located in the State Gallery of Munich, and it's in full color in the gallery, and I have a full color copy of it here, but in my book, it only had it in black and white, so that's why we printed the black and white version, but it, it is in full color. But what he did in this painting is a break from what others did. In fact, I'm going to read you something from Wisserhoff's book where he quotes Goethe, the uh, German uh, author who decided to analyze Rembrandt over against the other artists of the time. Uh, he defended Rembrandt against uh, those who say the Italians did, it, did art better than the Dutch or than, than Rembrandt. And he said, cold refinement and the stiff ecclesiastical 
propriety have caused all the biblical passages to be pulled out of their simplicity and truth and torn away from the sympathizing heart, this is Goethe saying it, in order to dazzle the gaping eyes of dullness. Do Mary and the boy not sit before the shepherds among the ornaments of all the altar frames? In some of the Italian paintings, they have the, 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 birth, of, uh, the birth of Christ with Mary, the mother, and, and Joseph in a vast, in almost like a, almost a, a palace with all the angels and everything around and all this various mysterious uh, rays of light and halos and... Uh, as if they were on show for money, or as if she had prepared for the honor of this visit after four weeks' rest and all the leisure of childbed and the joys of womanhood. That's what Goethe says. And now Bisserhoff goes on and explains. But what do we have now is quite an ordinary shed. Father is sitting in a wheelbarrow. Mother is on the straw. Shepherds are arriving with their wives and children. One has brought his bagpipe along. A small boy is gazing at the newly born child with great interest. Could there be a more human, a more ordinary scene? And yet something extraordinary seems to be happening in this scene and giving it a deeper meaning. The attitude of the shepherds indicates that they have just discovered something tremendous. Remember, they heard the angels say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign you will find him. And that's that great line in Luke 2. And this scene, Rembrandt is paying, portraying the scene when those shepherds came and found this child. You know, we always say there was no room for them in the inn. Aren't we grateful that the shepherds didn't have to go to room 403 to see <laughs> the birth of this child? They went to the only place that was available to them in the stable. And that's where the shepherds could go because they could bring... Uh, these are night shepherds, so they could bring the sheep with them. They couldn't leave them anywhere. Uh, they had to bring them with them. And so Rembrandt sort of captures that sort of earthiness. It is not... Uh, uh, their joy is mingled with awe and amazement. The shepherds who are taking... On, one shepherd is taking off his hat, has suddenly seen a great light. The other lifts his hands as if for prayer. A handful of men have grasped the the certainty and the truth contained in this incredible message of a Savior wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. That's the painting you've got now in front of you. Joseph seems to say, I do not understand it either, but it is so. This child is the Messiah promised by God. And his mother, notice, she is not sitting on a throne, she, which is the true of the Baroque paintings. They always had Mary with the child and the haloed child and enthroned Mary. She's not on a throne. Uh, she's not sitting on a throne. She, she does not dream of parading her child before the spectators. Her gaze is lost in the distance. Her joy is overshadowed by the grief which she foresees in the fate of her son because she heard uh, both Anna and she also heard Simeon say... Uh, you will, you will suffer, too, about this amazing child that you have. And notice there is, Rembrandt is famous for light and the use of light. But again, Rembrandt does not do what the Baroque and the, the Italian painters did with light. He makes the light 
uh, there, but hard to explain. Notice. There is a lantern in the painting. So you don't have a ray of light coming down from heaven. There is a lantern. In fact, that's the official name that Rembrandt gave of this painting. Adoration of the shepherds with a lantern. There is a lantern, but there's more light than the lantern can supply. So he makes the light mysterious. Notice it. The lantern is there, but the lantern cannot explain the amazing light. And then also the shadows. Rembrandt likes to have things dark, too, and the shadows are there. And notice a ladder precariously above the Holy Family. If you're a Rembrandt fan, you know that he was quite intrigued with ladders. Uh, his famous painting of, uh, of Jesus Christ on the cross is not in the, in the tradition of the glorified Jesus Christ on the cross. It's called Descent from the Cross. By the way, I've seen that painting. It's in the Mellon Art Gallery in New York, in Washington, D.C. The, the descent from the cross with probably the most profound portrayal of a person in grief that's ever been in art, the mother of our Lord at the foot of the cross in grief and the body of Christ being brought down from the cross. But notice with a ladder, two ladders, two ugly ladders are put on the cross. It's not a glorious, it's not a glorious scene. It's an earthy scene where they're bringing a body down that's broken. But notice how Rembrandt raises all the big questions. Where are they taking that body? Because he, it's, there's movement in the painting. Where are they taking? And what's going to happen to that body? All of that is raised in the way Rembrandt portrays the coming down ladder. Now notice here, adoration of the shepherds, a ladder uh, which, which, signify, which in a way symbolizes danger. There is danger over this family, notice. And a rooster on top of the ladder, representing, who knows, is that supposed to be an echo of the denial of our Lord that lies ahead and the danger of his own trial. But notice, Mary is sort of in wonder. Joseph is there, somewhat baffled. And the child is there, and then, but it's totally earthy, except for the mysterious excess of light beyond what the lantern could provide. So Rembrandt does, as a, an interpreter, is saying, just exactly as the angel said to the shepherds, this will be a sign. Notice, this, for any birth, there needs to be a witness. There's got to be a witness for a birth. Uh, every family has to have a witness for a birth. And the witness for the birth of Christ is going to be, in, in Matthew's account, in, in Luke's account, the witness to the birth of Christ uh, are not these saints who you may later meet when he's taken in to be circumcised, but for the birth of Christ, the witness are these night shift shepherds with their sheep, with their families brought. And it's mysterious that there's a light just like the angel said to them when the angel met them uh, in, uh, when they were out at night, this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. That's the sign, and you get to see it. And that's sort of, in a sense, Rembrandt, as a biblical interpreter, is doing something that none of the Italian artists captured with all of the glorification 
the attempt to glorify, as if we need to glorify uh, this scene. So that's it. Now, the, the, uh, the next painting that we want to look at. In 1646, then, is Adoration of the Shepherds. And uh, then in 1668, uh, uh, actually, uh, just after the, uh, the, the death of his son, Titus, uh, which was a terrible blow to him, and uh, there are some marvelous paintings in, the, in my big Rembrandt book here, if you want to see it, marvelous paintings of that young man that Rembrandt liked to paint him as, as a model for a lot of his biblical scenes was young Titus. But at 27, he dies, and then that year, uh, Rembrandt is now in poverty. In fact, you know, he was in such poverty that these Mennonite friends uh, took up an offering to uh, afford him a decent burial. So this, the greatest painter, uh, who, who any one of his paintings would be worth millions and millions of dollars today, but uh, dies in poverty with only a couple of, in fact, the auditor only wrote down uh, two books that were, that were in his library, uh, Josephus's uh, Jewish Wars and the Bible, a and then uh, his unfinished painting. And the unfinished painting is his greatest painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Uh, that's now was purchased by Catherine the Great. You know, here's an irony. There are more great Rembrandts in the Hermitage Museum in, in the Russia than there are in the Reich Museum in Holland. Because uh, most of the great Rembrandts uh, are all over Europe and the United States and everywhere. Uh, Aristotle... Uh, or uh, contemplating the bust of uh, Homer. That great one is in New York. I saw it just last week as I was in New York. I went to the New York Public, New York M Museum, and there is that. Also, a beautiful painting of his uh, common law wife is in New York. A beautiful, uh, one of those beautiful paintings that he, he did. Uh, but uh, the Hermitage uh, was able to get a hold of the, the greatest painting. It's huge. Uh, and uh, I love, I'm going to read now a little bit from Henri Nguyen. Henri Nguyen wrote this book. It's, it's a commentary on the parable of the prodigal son, is what the book is. But, of course, he starts the book by telling us about his own experience with this painting. And so I'm going to let him speak for himself. He says how he saw it as a poster. And he was totally struck by this poster. Uh, and it was... Uh, uh, it, it just literally uh, struck him. He's a young professor at Yale, actually, uh, and then he's uh, a, a Roman Catholic uh, priest in a, uh, a sacred congregation, Roman Catholic sacred congregation. He ended his whole career uh, in a sacred congregation that served people who were mentally ill and who were mentally, uh, uh, in, mentally challenged, and those are the people he gave his life to at the end of his life. But he tells about seeing this poster and deciding he's got to go to Russia to see the painting for himself. And I will read to you his impression of the painting. He goes to St. Petersburg. He hires a guy named Alexa who takes him there to the Hermitage. He comes to the Hermitage, and so there I was, facing the painting that had been on my mind and in my heart for nearly three years. I was stunned by its 
majestic beauty. And so you folks can now look at your painting with this in mind. He's going to explain it to you. It's size, larger than life. It's a huge painting. It, it really is. It's not completely finished because there are parts that, that as if he didn't, had a couple of characters yet still to finish up that he had just sketched in. So it's huge. I was stunned by its majestic beauty, its size larger than life, its abundant reds, browns, and yellows, its shadowy recesses and bright foreground, but most of all, the light-enveloped embrace of father and son surrounded by four mysterious bystanders. All of this gripped me with an intensity far beyond my anticipation. There had been moments in which I had wondered whether the real painting might disappoint me. The opposite was true. Its grandeur, its splendor, made everything recede into the background and held me completely captivated. Coming here was indeed a homecoming. While many tourist groups and their guides came and left in rapid succession, I sat on one of the red velvet chairs in front of the painting and just looked. And now I was seeing the real thing. Not only the father embracing the child come home. By the way, he makes the comment, so did Visserhoof, about this painting. Look at the painting now. Everything is static in the painting except for the hands of the father. If you look at the painting and you think about what's happening in the painting, the movement is the hands and, of course, uh, critics of art say it's the most majestic portrayal of hands in all of art are the hands of the father, and they are hugging the boy. They're moving. You see it? They're pulling him in. Everything else, the elder brother, everyone feels this, the erect man next door is the elder brother. Of course, the, the chronology of the parable is not the same, but they're... The elder brother stands erect. And there are other characters, too. The mother, they believe, is in the painting, the mother of, of the son. And she's had just come out of a door. And then there's a maid hidden, and there is a worker. So those are the other mysterious characters, plus, of course, the boy. And so, uh, so he says, many groups came and... and it is huge work of oil and canvas. It's, it's eight feet high and six feet wide. So that's how big it is. It took me a while to simply be there, simply absorbing that I was truly in the presence of what I had so long hoped to see, simply enjoying the fact that it was, I was all by myself sitting in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg looking at the prodigal son for as long as I wanted the, the guide comes and gets him and says, you have to go now. So he says, can I come again? And the guide brought him the next day again. And then he says, after coffee, I returned to the painting for another hour until the guard and the cleaning lady let me know in no uncertain terms. Then he spent the whole day there. And the cleaning lady made me know in no uncertain terms that the museum was closing and that I'd been there long enough. Four days later, I returned for another visit to the painting. And during that session, something amusing happened. Uh, and I should, uh, should, I should not leave untold. Because of the angle from which the morning sun hit the painting, the varnish gave off a distracting glare. So I took one of the red velvet chairs and moved it to a place where the glare was cut, and I could once again see clearly the figures in the painting. 
As soon as uh, the guard, a serious young man with cap and a military uniform, saw what I was doing, he became very upset by my audacity and picking up the chair and putting it somewhere else. He walked over to me, ordered me with an outpouring of Russian words and universal gestures to put the chair back in its place. In response, I pointed to the sun and to the canvas saying, and trying to explain to him why I had moved the chair. My efforts were absolutely no success, so I returned the chair to its place and sat on the floor instead. But that only disturbed the guard even more. After some further animated attempts to win the sympathy of the guard for my problem, my problem, he told me to sit on the radiator below the window from where I could have a good view. However, the first interest guide passing by with a large group marched up to me and told me sternly, and of course she would know English, of course, and told me sternly to get off the radiator and to sit on one of the velvet chairs. At that, the guard became very angry at the guide and told her with a profusion of words and gestures that it was he who had let me sit on the radiator. The guide did not seem satisfied, but decided to return her attention to the tourists who were looking at the Rembrandt and wondering about the size of the figures. A few minutes later, Alexa came and said, how was I doing? Immediately, the guard walked up to him and both of them entered into a long conversation. Of course, that would be in Russian. The guard was obviously trying to explain what had happened, but the discussion lasted so long that I wondered somewhat anxiously where it would all lead. Then, quite suddenly, Alexa left for a moment, I felt quite guilty at having caused such a stir and thought that I had made Alexa angry with me. Ten minutes later, however, Alexa returned carrying a large, comfortable armchair with red velvet upholstery and gold-painted paint legs, all for me. With a big grin, he put the chair in front of the painting and bade me sit in it. Alexa, the guard, and I all smiled. I had my own chair and nobody objected any longer. Suddenly it all seemed very comical. Three empty chairs that would not be touched and a luxurious armchair brought in from another room in the Winter Palace, offered to me freely moved around. Elegant bureaucracy. I wondered if any of the figures in the painting who had been witnesses to this whole scene were smiling along with us. I'll never know. But he spent Four days there, just hours studying this painting. And, of course, the painting has uh, the, the, the boy who has come home and uh, the father, the elder brother, the mother, perhaps, a worker, and uh, uh, perhaps a maid that's up in the corner. These are perhaps still sketched in and unfinished. Uh, and I agree with uh, Henri Nguyen, but I also it was pointed out also by Visterhof. I agree that the uh, the hands are the moving part in the in the painting. You always look what's moving in the painting, what's static, what's moving. What's moving are the hands of the father. The father is embracing this boy and bringing him in. And if you know the parable of the prodigal son, by the way, I do have to make one correction of of Henri Nguyen. He says the father who is half blind is putting his hands on the boy. Uh, and I don't agree with that because that's not the parable. But I have to tell you a true story. Uh, I got to see the, the Hermitage uh, Museum, uh, Rembrandt, and my 
the, took my wife and my three children. We all went there on our one big trip when we came across Russia on the Trans-Siberian train. And then one of the big things I wanted to do was to go to that museum and for my kids to see the Hermitage, but especially to see Return of the Prodigal. And we were there, and uh, we had a guide. And we, we hired a guide just for us because we were four people. And so we figured we, we couldn't be in a group, so we, got, we did hire a guide. And she was very, very militant and powerful. And she taught in, in a college, and then she moonlighted and guided, and her English was flawless. And she took us through the whole museum, and it was unbelievable. And then we came, and she saved till last, which, by the way, is what they do at the Hermitage. The prize, if you, if you look at any book on the Hermitage, the, the cover of the, of the book will be uh, The Return of the Prodigal because it's the most famous painting in the Hermitage. And yet the Hermitage has more famous paintings of artists. Of the, it has more Picassos than almost any other, more Renoirs, more Monet. Uh, everything is in, and the Van Goghs, everything is there. But the greatest is the Rembrandt Room, and that's where all these great paintings are. And so uh, our guide took us through the whole museum, and we saw the, and then we got here. And then she is explaining, and I didn't ever say anything to the guy because she knew so much. But when we, I know something about Rembrandt. And so we got to the uh, Rembrandt collection, which I was so excited to see. And then she said to our kids, notice uh, the blind father as he blesses his son. And I said, what? And she said, the blind father as he blesses his son. Almost what Henri Nuis says, the almost blind father. And I said to her, I said, no, that's not right. And, and you had to realize she was a powerful lady. And so I said, no, that's not right. And then I recited to her the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable, it's very clear that when the boy was a long way off, the father saw him. Not the brother. He's lucky the brother didn't see him. But the father saw him and ran to greet him. And that's why those hands are so important, pulling him in. And then said, now we'll have the party. But the best part of the parable prodigal son is really uh, that after the party has started, the elder son is angry, and he is outside. So if you want to take this painting, the elder son stands when he realizes the boy has come home, and he's furious, and he goes out. And in, in our Lord's parables, the second part of the story of the parable is usually the most important part of the parable. Remember, it was the Pharisees who were angry at Jesus for welcoming sinners. And that's why he told the parable of the lost coins, the lost sheep, and the lost son. But in the parable, the father goes out into the dark and finds the elder boy just like he found the younger boy before the boy found him. And then comes, and you think about it for a minute, in, the, in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the most moving promise and, and word of blessing is given not to the elder, not to the younger boy, but to the elder boy. The father finds the boy and says, Son, everything I have is yours but it was right that we had this party because this your brother was lost and is now found and dead and now alive, found and now. And so the father finds the elder brother 
with his good eyesight. He has better eyesight than we. So I said to the, the guide, I said, no, you see the parable, the whole point is the father has very good eyesight. And, and, and when it was over, she said, oh. And, uh, she, did, and she did not argue with me. But the, the thing that got me, though, was she had told us that her main job was to guide university students, American students, in the, in the museum. And I thought to myself, she had probably told hundreds and hundreds of, of university students, notice the blind father as he's blend, uh, blessing his son. No, that's the story of another, that's one of the, 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 the Isaac Jacob stories. That is different, where a boy is, deceives his father into blessing him. This is not a boy who deceives his father into blessing him. The father knows all about him, and his hands are pulling him in. It's, uh, anyway, so uh, I, I realized that nobody ever corrected her. She was very strong, so you, it was hard to correct her. But, but and, and when I did do it as gently as I could, I said, she said, oh. And, uh, but notice that Rembrandt is an interpreter of the Bible. He interprets. Uh, he sees that the father has brought this boy in. The, the boy is, has come in, in, you know, in maybe, uh, as you know in the parable, he said, Father, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The boy feels unworthy, but the father puts a ring on his hand, and those hands, those amazing hands of blessing, Rembrandt saw it. He saw it in the, uh, in the adoration of the shepherds. He saw that tenderness, that earthiness. I want to read one last quote from Visserdehoof. He, uh, he's now paying tribute to the Mennonites who blessed Rembrandt in his, in his lonely period of his life. In the whole circle that surrounded Rembrandt, as well as Rembrandt's work, there's no trace of a mystic religiosity in which men are engulfed in a universal ground or ecstatic experience. Speculations on the function of light in Rembrandt's paintings and the theme of light in mysticism cannot change the fact that man is represented by Rembrandt, always remaining an earthy creature who knows about the distance between God and man. The same is true of the men who were his friends. Uh, they, they, are not, they were not a mystical crowd. They were a kind of earthy, gospel-centered crowd. Rembrandt was probably, a, a, well, his humor, it says, kept him down to earth, but his acquaintances... Oh, he says, the acquaintances of Rembrandt could, in a certain sense, be called pietists. They were pietists. They were very concerned about the relationship that you have with, with Christ. And he has this one last line. To them, the Christ of the New Testament is the very center of their history. And that, of course, is, is what you get in the, these two great paintings. This has been very interesting. We actually have three interpreters of story. We have Rembrandt interpreting the story, and now in interpreting Rembrandt's story, and Earl interpreting both of their stories. And uh, also we've had the appearance of a very strong woman, uh, but Earl being married to Shirley uh, was accustomed to this situation and handled it gently and overcame the Russian bureaucracy. 
Uh, <laughs> so we're going to be back with uh, our audience's questions and comments right after this. Don't go away. This is Dick Staub. by uh, listening to the Earl Palmer Show at uh, the Kindling's Muse, and we've been discussing Rembrandt and Henri Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal Son, and uh, it's been an interesting conversation already, and we're now, in just a moment, going to get to the audience questions. I, I wanted to just, just ask you your own thoughts about how Rembrandt's own painful journey with faith and with the church uh, is reflected in the rich interpretation he gives of biblical stories. I mean, I was reminded tonight of Soren Kierkegaard, who, who railed against the wealthy elitist in his church that did not accept common people, and Rembrandt experienced this this kind of uh, dissonance with the church and ended up with Mennonites who were kind of simpler and more uh, committed to him as a person. And it seems to me that, that, that a lot of what you were describing and the way he got the humanness of the story is much closer to the way Jesus saw those stories. And, and I just wonder how much that was a result in, in your thinking of Rembrandt's own experience of pain. Uh, yeah, yeah, I really think it is of, uh, it's, it's worth reflecting on. Uh, I do want to make clear, and Vistrov, who's... Uh, a terrific historian of Rembrandt's life, Rembrandt's life, does preserve the fact. Rembrandt never became cynical about the church. Yeah. Uh, and he never rejected the, the... You're talking now about the Dutch Reformed Church, right. which was, uh, you know, the Christian Reform Movement in the United States, the Dutch Reform Movement, is a, is a, a part of our Calvinistic tradition. And uh, unfortunately, they had a non-art... Uh, tradition. Uh, I wish they, it, it could have been a little more Catholic. It would have been uh, better because the Catholic Church always supported the artists, but the Reformed Church wanted spare uh, sanctuaries with no stained glass windows. Big mistake, in my opinion. Uh, nothing and no, uh, no sculptures for sure. That would be idolatry. Uh, that's a mistake. And, cer and certainly no paintings in the building. So here you've got this greatest artist, in my opinion, of all time, and he can't have any of his art in the, in the uh, church hmm. because it would be uh, disrespectful of the purity and the simple. They want winter glass windows, pure white walls, and a pulpit, and then the Bible, and the preacher. And it's great, but, you know, it's just too hmm. much. Yeah. Uh, they should have had... A, a little more generosity uh, to the artist. And, and so anyway, but yet Rembrandt, he never, he never gets miffed at that. In fact, they call him in uh, to scold him for the fact that he's living with a woman without marriage. But they don't know maybe the complication of his, that if he marries her, then he loses all uh, of the estate money that uh, he needed. And Rembrandt did love money. And he, it's true, he was selling, he was riding high up until uh, he, up to the time of the night watch and all the rest. He was riding high, had so many jobs, until 
he went into bankruptcy and they're now, that's why I made the joke about Costco. Now they're, the paintings are all available and nobody wants to, to hire him anymore. But you know, he doesn't become bitter toward the church. Uh, he stays mellow. And uh, his son is a, very much a big part of his life. And, you know, he dies soon after his son dies. And, you know, he uh, has these Mennonite friends who were free church, but they weren't bitter against. So I lost the quote, but this sort of makes a big point that he never rejected mm. the fellowship of the believers. He, he always, yeah. like he wanted so much to have his daughter baptized yeah. in, the, in the Dutch church. And they did, even though they were, they were miffed that uh, this breaking our rules, not the way it's supposed to be, but they did it. And so we have to give credit to the Dutch church. They did baptize Cornelia. Um, but you know what? When he could, isn't it interesting... You and I love C.S. Lewis, and we know that Lewis was three times promoted for promotion at, at Oxford, and three times he, he was uh, voted against uh, promotion. And that was probably because he wrote Pilgrim's Regress, and you're not supposed to write a, a book about your faith. If you're a professor, it's outside your field. You're not supposed to write outside your field. You can write a novel outside your field, but you can't write anything outside your field in, in Oxford. You're not supposed to. And uh, so he got in trouble, and also... Uh, he was sharing his faith in a way that, that caused him to lose, uh, lose uh, votes. But, you know, it turned out to be good because Lewis never got promoted. Therefore, he stayed a tutor. Therefore, he had to meet students. Therefore, he had to read student papers. If you get promoted in Oxford and become a full professor, you're on easy street. Believe me, you only have to give a couple lectures a year sometimes. You don't have to meet students at all. You have your, your, your young PhD students underneath you do all the meeting with students. You never have to do any of that stuff. And you sit and visit with other scholars. Lewis couldn't do that. And it turned out to be a blessing. He said, it did me great good, hmm. though he was humiliated by it. Rembrandt focused on drawing pictures of people. And he drew pictures that nobody else drew pictures of. For instance, in this book are some pictures uh, of uh, Africans that he, he was fascinated to draw Africans. He was fascinated to draw Jews. He would find Jews that he could particularly draw because he wanted biblical characters that, would, that, would, that, would, uh, that he could use. His great head of Christ is really the other title of I have it in my study, his head of Christ. Is, uh, is in the Berlin Museum, but it actually is, the other title is A Jewish Young Man. Hmm. It's a Jewish young man, but that is when he thought of Christ, that's what he felt Christ would have looked like. So he was drawing people, and of course himself, and drawing people and drawing scenes from the Bible. And now his scenes from the Bible lack all of that glorification. Mm -hmm. They've become earthy. And I think you're right. The, the fact that a little suffering does that to a person, maybe. And they either get well, don't bitter. Don't let the, all art of the all artists here tonight just love that message. <laughs> Suffer more. Your art will be amazing. Um, <laughs> we got a lot of questions here. One of them, though, that uh, Sonia raised that I was going to ask you myself. If you look at the hands of the father, 
uh, Nowen develops the idea that there is a masculine and a feminine hand, that the left hand is much more masculine, is bigger, and the, the right hand is smaller and more feminine. And Nowen is kind of developing the idea that Rembrandt wanted to give the sense of both a father and a mother in the hands of the artist. And Sonia and I are interested in what you think about that. Well, I, I, you know, that's the interpreter trying to see nuances. But I wouldn't, uh, I don't think I would uh, attribute it to the artist there. I, unless it was, uh, the artist just uh, did it, you know, you might say intuitively. But I wouldn't say by design. I think he, he Rembrandt is thinking of the hands are the hands of the father. But yet, you, if uh, that's a sort of a, that's an interpreter's uh, read. All right, let's get Ed's question. Um, now one speaks in his book about the conversion of the two sons, and he talks about it as a conversion. And he says at the end that the conversion of the eldest son was the more difficult conversion. And I'm wondering, do you think that now one is speaking to us who have been in the church our lives possibly, or... Yeah, what is, your, what is your thought about that conversion that he's talking about? Yeah, because uh, the, the problem with the... Uh, the advantage of the younger son's uh, fall is that he got to a place where no one gave him anything. That's what the text... If you look at the simplicity of the, math, of the Luke text, our Lord's teaching of it. No one gave him anything. And then he comes to himself. That coming to himself in that period of complete uh, fatigue and complete uh, disruption. He, and no one gave him anything. Uh, before, people were selling him things when he had money. But now he has no money. And he would have eaten what the pigs are eating, which uh, even his Jewish identity is now completely compromised. I'm going to eat non-kosher food and all the rest. But I'm, 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 I come to myself, and then I say, my father's, even my father's slaves are better off than I am. So it's interesting that our Lord puts in the, in the mouth of the young man the concern first for his own survival before he then repents and thinks of, I must now face up to my guilt. I have... There's been, you know, Anne right now makes a big point of the fact that when the boy said, I want my share of the estate, every Jewish reader of that would say, that's death wish. I wish my dad were dead. Because if he were dead, I would get his wealth. <laughs> Except that wasn't true for Rembrandt. When his wife died, he didn't get the wealth. But that would be true of any ordinary interpreter of that text. The, the son is saying, Dad, I you're so healthy. I wish you were dead. Then I would get my share of the estate. Give me my share of the estate, is what he said. Not loan me some money, Dad, but give me what I would get if you die. And so there's death wish there. But now he comes to himself, and he's going to go back to his father and wager on the fact that his father is still alive. There is that, I think that is a profound thing, that he's wagering on the fact that the father is still alive and that the father, uh, uh, he's willing to trust in the goodwill of the father. Now, we know from the, the story that the brother, if, that's why I made a joke, 
he's lucky that the father had better eyesight than the brother. Because the brother, when he describes his brother, he says, this son of yours, not my brother, has wasted your money on harlots. No one ever brought up harlots before. It's the elder brother who brings that up. Harlots and loose living. And you kill for him the fatted calf. So now there's self-righteousness. And that's why Nguyen makes that point. The, the elder brother is filled with self-righteousness. But give him credit. He has, all these years I have served you. All these years I have stayed. I have never asked for my estate. I have never asked. And I've stayed. And, and to me, the, uh, the thing that I love about the parable is that it's grace that rescues the younger boy. And it's grace, not scolding or not tr truth-telling, that wins the elder brother. The elder brother needs grace, too. It's just that he doesn't know it. He thinks that he is uh, self-made and that he, I've done everything right. I never got a party, but I did everything right. And yet he doesn't hear the scolding of the father. He gets grace, too. And that's why I made this statement. You think about it for a minute. The most beautiful promise in the parable is not really to the younger boy. It's to the elder boy. Everything I have is yours. Alex, what's yeah. your question? Uh, where did the mistake about the father being blind originate? Uh, well, I think it, at least the guide in my opinion, was confused uh, or is confused by another, uh, there are, and another Rembrandt painting has a blind man, Simeon, and, and that is one of his great paintings, is Simeon blessing the Christ child, and there is no question that that man is blind. But why did Nowen then say almost blind? He, he, I mean, he's doing Nowen this. doesn't say blind. He just says the almost blind father. I but don't where know. would Nowen get that? I don't know. Because it's not in the parable. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's not in the parable. We have an audience member that says he was almost blind. He must have been because he was 62 years old. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but there is, there is the blind uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob. There, there is the blinding there. The father is blind and now is blessing a son who's between Esau and Jacob. Jacob in fact, that's where Jacob gets his name, Deceiver. You know, Israel means deceiver. He deceived the father. But that's not in this parable. This younger boy does not deceive the father. Uh, he Harlan, comes, you know, he comes question? back. In fact, he's interrupted by the father. He comes back saying, I have sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's about to say, make me your slave. And the father interrupts him. That divine interruption is grace. You know. Harland, your question. You described uh, the father's hands as embracing the son, and, and that, that's true. But when I look at the painting, uh, it really seems that the father's hands are caressing the son in a tender way, more than just an embrace or a hugging of him, but it's a really tender uh, moment. You know, I love that, too. The, the, the hands, they're... They are freedom hands. He's freeing the boy. He's not grasping the boy. And that's, again, there's movement. The hands are moving.
but they're the, move, they're the movement that sets you free, doesn't clutch you. He is not clutching. It almost makes you think of the Re Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. It's, our freedom is preserved. It's, he, God does not clutch us. And, uh, and therefore, we should never pray that he do it. We should not pray, Lord, overwhelm me. Uh, it's better to say, Lord, set me free uh, so that I can worship you, you know. And, and that's grace. And I think Rembrandt saw it because you're right. He does not have a clutching father. And it's, it's a blessing. Annie May has a question. Nowen wrote he finally saw himself in the picture of the father. I was wondering, who do you see yourself in the painting? Yeah, where do you, uh, and uh, Henri Nguyen did that to us too in the painting. I love it that he, he thought of the people in his life and he thought of himself too. Uh, we think of ourselves as the, uh, I think it's wise that we see ourselves in the painting. Uh, and Henri saves the last chapter to see himself as the father. You know, is that rude or is that arrogant for us to see ourselves as the father? No, I think once you have faced up to yourself as the elder brother, arrogant, self-righteous, easily, uh, uh, very uh, happy to condemn the people that ha have let us down and, and you know, done death wish and done all the bad things, and then seen ourselves as the son who uh, had gone awry and then came to ourselves and came back and then see ourselves as spectators. And Henri Newman spends a lot of time on that. Those people are just watching baffled. Uh, and maybe is the mother there? That's one of the, uh, one of the speculations of Visserdehoof, that there's the mother back there in the, in the see, unfinished painting. And a, a maid, a little girl up in the corner, and then a worker. See, those are the other sort of unfinished, a lot of Rembrandt's paintings, you know, are not quite finished. He's sketched in, but hasn't completed the sketch. And then remember, it, this is an unsigned painting. He didn't finish it. He dies uh, before he finishes it. So, and, he, and, and so, uh, Henri, and I think Henri Nguyen did a very clever thing, for me at least, when he says, okay, now, the last chapter, let, can you see yourself as the father? How, where, how, how am I a father? And how can I welcome back these two kinds of people in my life? And, and uh, without, you know, without, to, without scolding and, with, and the father does not scold. You know, you think about it. He doesn't, I've heard sermons on this text where the father goes out and scolds the older boy. That is a wrong, that's a wrong interpretation of the text. He doesn't scold the boy, but he does invite the boy into a larger hope. He says, it was right that we have this because your brother was dead. He's now alive. You know, now, come have a party. Ed, what's your question? Are there any other artists that you can recommend as good interpreters of the Bible? Uh, any other artists that are good interpreters of the Bible? Wow. Well, Michelangelo, I think, is. is uh, and then there's this famous Italian artist that 
uh, I never get his name right. Gervasi. I've seen, I've seen his, he's famous for the beheading of John the Baptist, but he also has a painting of the conversion of St. Paul on the road to Damascus, and you know what he does in that painting? Uh, Paul is, remember, Paul is struck blind, but the horse recognizes Christ in the painting. The natural order knows the truth, and the horse, and so in his painting, he has the horse recognizing that it's the Messiah. Paul, of course, is blinded. Is and that, is that, you know, um, that Cavaggio? Cavaggio. I've seen, I don't like the beheading of John the Baptist painting. That's his most famous painting. But he was Italian and a great painter. And I think Michelangelo is a great painter. Um, uh, the... Uh, I love a painter. I got to go to the Vatican, uh, the Sistine Chapel once, and I, w I remember going in. There's a room that you go to before you go in the Sistine Chapel, and there is a painter there. It's I think it's Raphael. I'm not sure. But it's a painter uh, who's painting Christ and uh, teaching. And I love it because Raphael's great uh, uh, rival was uh, Michelangelo. In life, they were both rivals, and I remember our guide, as we were going into the Sistine Chapel, said, "Now this is this painting is in this in this room in this ante room in the Vatican," and uh, and he says, "Do you know who the young man sitting on the stairs is in the painting?" And uh, we all wondered. I don't know, and it, the young man is Michelangelo, and it was interesting that the rival. The rival to Michelangelo puts Michelangelo reverently sitting there hearing the words of Jesus. And I thought, now that is a wonderful, uh, gracious interpretation of two rivals because they, they don't like each other as artists and they're resentful of each other. And yet Raphael in that painting puts Michelangelo in the painting. But he doesn't say, this is Michelangelo. It's just you have to, I guess, know that that's our final question is Mary. And I, this is a pretty minor question, but in the top of the the adoration of the shepherds on that beam, there's lettering, and I'm wondering, I'm lettering, you know, like letters, and I'm wondering if that's Rembrandt's signature up there on that beam, or if that's if he signed it somewhere else, or if that's just a happenstance. I'm not Some sure. Some kids carving graffiti. On yeah, the I'm beam. not. I, I'm not sure that the. I've never seen any interpretation about about what the uh, letters would be if there are letters. Yeah, I think it, maybe it's just lighting, uh, lighting. But I am intrigued by this. I love Adoration of the Shepherds. The sheer simplicity of it as the great picture to prepare you for Christmas, but also the fact that, uh, typical of Rembrandt, he's going to put that ladder in. It's so disruptive. It, you know, we would rather have a beam of light, you know, like uh, the Italian painters would put in, but you don't. You get a ladder. Mm. And uh, it, it's, it's a humble place, but it also is, it's precarious. There's a danger that ladder could fall. Another fascinating conversation, and uh, for those of you that have not yet read Nowen's book, one of the most touching parts of that story is in the exploration of this painting 
now in, comes to reconcile with his own father. And it's one of the major themes for, for now. And, and what's interesting about it is... He dedicated were, it to his yeah. father, too. And you mentioned earlier that, <clears throat> that uh, Rembrandt did not allow himself to become resentful of, of the church. And Nowen says in his interpretation of uh, the story of the prodigal son that joy and resentment cannot coexist. And, and so you, you learn that every character in that story has a reason to resent the other characters. And, and this great quality of joy comes when we let go of our resentment. So it's interesting because Rembrandt, who had learned that lesson in his life and interprets the story in a way that Nowen gets the message about resentment and it ends up changing his life with his father. And that's the power of these texts and good interpretation of the text. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful study. Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, no, aren't we grateful that, that uh, we're sorry that the that, uh, estate of his wife and her wealthy family had written the way it was, but then the history would have been different. But aren't we grateful that there were friends that uh, when Rembrandt went into bankruptcy, because you know, he had a lot of fair weather friends before he went into bankruptcy, had that beautiful house, you know, that you've seen. But isn't it wonderful there were friends who uh, watched his back and cared about him? And, uh, and I don't know, it's just, and then, of course, uh, his son, too. But his son, his son was very attentive to his dad, too. They, they were very close to each other, so there was a great father-son uh, relationship between uh, in fact, some of my very favorite of the Rembrandt paintings are the ones he did of his young son, who only lived to be 27. But it's just, I mean, that was a joy. And Cornelia was a great joy to his life. She survived uh, Rembrandt. And, but there it is. He, he, had, uh, he had friends, too, that mm. stuck with him. That's the joy. Well, just to end with this thought from uh, Nowen's book, Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, because ultimately it's a story about returning to God. The farther I run away from the place where God dwells, the less I am able to hear the voice that calls me the beloved. And the less I hear that voice, the more entangled I become in the manipulations and games of the world. The importance of kind of restoring the relationship with the Father that's brought out in Rembrandt's interpretation and now in Reverend Palmer's as well. Been another great evening on the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. Thanks for joining us. This is Dick Job, your host. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Hey, hey. Hey.